right, well, it's time to dig into the scriptures this morning, and I'm looking forward to uh, digging into Ephesians, because as we continue this exposition, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 2 this morning, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 and verse 2, and uh, we're going to be looking this morning at walking in love, walking in love. We're entering a new chapter, and we know that at this point in Ephesians, we're in the latter half, which is very much uh, applicational, very direct to the Christian life and uh, what we ought to live out in our life. And so we're going to be looking at verse 1 and verse 2 and uh, walking in love. Let's read this together. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We've already seen that walking is a prevalent application that the Apostle Paul uses when speaking of the Christian life. And what exactly do we mean by walking? Now, we're not talking about in a physical sense. It is good to get a good walk in in a physical sense. It can be refreshing and and renewing to our minds and our bodies. But what we're talking about here, when Paul uses this term of walking or to walk, he is using it to describe the manner in which the Christian is to live their life. And you'll find this repeated throughout the book of Ephesians. We've already seen it one or twice in the previous chapter. We opened Ephesians chapter 4, and Paul says there, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. He tells them in verse 17 of that same chapter to not walk as the Gentiles do, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And now he's bringing us to a continuation of how the Christian is to walk, using the same language to prompt the Ephesian church to live in a certain way. In fact, what you'll find through the rest of this chapter is really three three ways in which we ought to walk. The first being to walk in love. Later on, we're going to look at the command to walk in light. And then we'll also see we are to walk in wisdom. So all through this text, you're going to see application towards you in your Christian life as you live it. Now let's look at it for a moment. We think about walking in love. How is it, how is it that we're to walk in love and why is that important? Well, I think it's important for us to note this that walking in love is a foundational mark of the Christian life. It is foundational. Why is that? Because it is love that has brought about salvation to us. It is love that has brought redemption to us. It is love that has changed us, that has turned the course of our life. Love has ushered forth from the infinite grace and mercy of God to save us, to forgive us, and to change us forever. And because of the love of God in this fashion, we are called to walk in love. But what does that mean? Why is it that walking in love is the lifestyle of the Christian? What is it that urges and enables us to live in such a manner? Well, I want to point out just a few things from these two verses. Notice with me, number one in our notes this morning, the call of walking in love. This is the call to the Christian life, the call of walking in love. And I want to to point out two things about it. That firstly is that this call to walking in love, it is grounded 
in the character of God. It is grounded in the very character of God. Now, we notice that before Paul gives the command to walk in love, in verse 2, we notice in verse 1, he says, Therefore be imitators of who? Of God. He says, be imitators of God. Now, I want to point out this word, therefore, because what does therefore mean? Well, it connects us to what's come before it, right? And so there's an interconnection between chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Now remember, when Paul wrote this letter, there was no such thing as chapter breaks. There was no chapter 4 and chapter 5. There was no verse 1 and 2 and verse 32. There, that, that has been inserted into the Bible for our benefit And I'm thankful for that, right? It helps us in finding specific passages. But understand the flow and uh, content of the letter. Paul connects what he's saying with what he had just said in verse 32 of chapter 4. And what did he say to them? He said that the Christian is to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What do you notice about those characteristics that we're called to put on? They are characteristics of God Himself. God is kind. God is tender-hearted. God is forgiving on behalf of Christ. This is what the Lord has bestowed upon you as His people. He has manifested kindness to you, tender-heartedness to you, forgiveness to you. These are characteristics that flow from the infinite love of God. And the Christian is called to put on those characteristics. And here Paul further amplifies that when he calls on them to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. Now this may seem like an impossible Endeavor. Can we truly be imitators of God? Well, when we think about all of who God is, we know that we're not God. <laughs> but yet Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now we know that perfection, it's impossible for us in our sinful flesh. It's unattainable for us to be perfect. Now, if you're a perfectionist and you're trying to be perfect in your life, Welcome to a life of failure. It's never going to happen. Not going to happen for you. So understand that you're human. You have a flesh that you're at war with. But that doesn't negate the command and the example that Jesus gives to us. This command is true and shows us how perfect the Father is and how imperfect we actually are. Now, the only way in which we could ever be perfect is if God makes us perfect, and which by His grace He has promised to do, in our glorification in the future. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the day when I'm not at war with the sinful flesh anymore. Christian, there's a day when you will be exactly like Jesus in the sense that you're glorified. No longer having a fallen flesh that you're at war with, you're completely and utterly new. Now, we are new internally by means of the new creation in which we've been regenerated and born again, but there is coming a day in which our bodies themselves will be made new, the whole of our being. But here I want you to see 
that Paul's talking about right now being an imitator of God in the Christian life. We're to be imitators of God. What, what exactly does he mean by that? What's it mean to imitate someone? Well, the word for imitators here is used as a term in which we get the word mimic from. Someone who copies specific characteristics of another person. Have you ever had someone try to copy you? Well, one of the common ways a child likes to annoy the other child, their sibling, is by mimicking or copying them. And I'll just confess right now, I was a professional at that when I was a kid. I got really good at annoying my sister by repeating every word she said or uh, doing the same things she did, all for the purpose of getting on her nerves. There's no good motive. That's just what I wanted to do. I wanted to upset her. That's a bad form of mimicking. But Paul's talking about a good form of mimicking. He's talking about living out and reflecting the very characteristics that God has Himself that He has displayed to us. Now, notice I think this is important too. As we look at verse 1, that Paul adds to this, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is very important. As beloved children. Why is this statement significant? Well, here's some practical things just in the realm of human life. The influence and example of parents always affect their children. Always. Children naturally want to do what their parents do, especially when they're younger. Whenever I mow the yard, David and Jubilee love to mow the yard with me. They see Daddy out there on the mower say, Oh, Daddy, can we ride? They want to jump on the mower and ride. David even has his own little toy mower that he rides around on and pretends that he's mowing, all because that's what Dad's doing, right? For Christmas, we got him a toy weed eater that spins and lights up, makes all kinds of noise. Wish I hadn't got it for him. Man, that thing's annoying. But, man, he wants to weed eat like Dad. He wants to do that. He wants to copy me, right? Their most recent desire to do what we do is cleaning the dishes. We woke up the other morning, before we got up, they were in the kitchen doing the dishes, putting dishes away, had soap and water in the sink, and David said, I don't want you to ever have to do the dishes again. Hey, Amen. We'll see how long that lasts, though. We, we know what it's like growing up. You don't want to do chores the older you get. But beyond just chores that young children do to be like their parents because they're young and cute and just want to do what mom and dad do, there are character traits that they also take on and will display in their life. Our children, understand this parents and even grandparents, our children, they watch what we do and hear what we say all the time, even if you don't realize it. Sometimes I will have said something, and I didn't realize Jubilee caught it, and she said, well, Dad, you said this the other day. Like, how'd you hear that? How'd you even know what I was talking about? They're smarter than what we give them credit for. And they naturally catch on to our characteristics, whether they are good or bad. And they will display them. And so what Paul is saying here to the Ephesians is this. Ephesians, mimic or imitate your heavenly Father, as dear children, because you are His dear children. 
Now, we can't imitate every characteristic of God. We're, we, we, don't, we don't have his attributes or all of his characteristics. We don't know all things. We're all powerful. We can't create a world. But there are certain characteristics of God that are given and given, we are given the ability to mimic or imitate by means of the Holy Spirit in us. Such as the one we're looking at here in love. What's another reason, Paul says, to imitate God as beloved children? All tied to imitating the love of God. The very reason that we are the children of God in the first place is because of the love of God that is set upon us. It is because of that. Now, recall for a moment what Paul opened the letter with in chapter 1 and verse 3 and verse 4 and 5. Listen to this when he talks about how we as Christians, we as his children, we are, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And he says, even as he, that's the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, notice this next verse, this next phrase. It says, in love, in love, he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You see what the the key thing is there? Two little words. In love, he predestined us unto the adoption of his sons. You understand, Christian, that it is because of sovereign, electing love that you are set apart as His child. Love has done that. Love has brought that to pass. Though the love of God, whose origin is eternal, very in the very essence of God's character, has chosen you, has called you, has converted you, has consecrated you, and is continuing to change you. The love of God has brought this to pass in your life. We don't fathom how deep that is. 1 John 3, 1. John the Apostle wrote much about the love of God. And in this epistle, he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And watch this, and so we are. He said, take note, look and behold the kind of love the Father has put upon us that we're His children that we should be His children, and so we are. You see, and because of this love of God in making you His child, you as His child are able to imitate His love because that love that He has shown towards you has been implanted into your own heart as His child. Paul wrote in Romans 5 and verse 5, it says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, here's the reality, Christian. We've talked about this all through the book of Ephesians at different times, about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The very person who is love indwells you. You know what that means? In you is the power to imitate the love of God, to mimic it. And we are entirely dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do such a thing. To become more like Christ. To truly imitate the characteristics of God that we see in the Scriptures. And so I think as you look at Ephesians 5.1 and Ephesians 1.5, they're interconnected together. We can imitate God in love because He in love has called us to Himself. Made us His children. 
But notice with me, letter B this morning, not only is the call to walking in love, it's grounded in the character of God, but understand this too, Christian, it's given as a command of God, from God. It's given as a command from God. Now, it's easy to see that that we ought to love because God is love, but notice in verse 2 that Paul plainly says, and walk in love. That is a command. That's not just some option that, well, if you feel like it, do this. He says, walk in love. Love must characterize our Christian life. This command is not optional based on whether you feel like loving someone or not. Our love for others is not to be dependent on their love for us as Christians. Now, I want you to think for a moment, what if God's love worked that way? What if God only would love you if you loved him first? There'd be no such thing as redemption. There'd be no such thing as knowing this love. Why do we love God? We love Him, 1 John 4.10, because He first loved us. And friend, this is the foundation of why we walk in love, because it is God who set His love upon us, even knowing every depraved sin we would ever commit in our life, His love was set upon us, even in eternity past. Knowing all that we would be, His love was set upon us. A.W. Pink, Baptist from years ago, I love this quote by him. He says of God, he says, He foresaw my every fall, my every sin, my every backsliding, yet nevertheless fixed His heart upon me. Friend, that humbles me to the core. Because I know how wretched I am in my flesh. And you ought to know how wretched you are in your flesh. And nevertheless, God knowing all of that, set His heart in love upon you. How many of us are glad that the Lord loved first? Once again, we're given the example of God Himself. He commands us to walk in love in our Christian life. And this means that we must, we must love God above all. That is the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. But more to the context, we are to love others, including both the believer and the unbeliever. Loving the believer most certainly is easier in some sense, at least in most cases. For they too have experienced the love of God, and they are your heavenly family. Love for your fellow Christians is a repeated command all throughout the Scriptures. I want you to turn with me to see the words of Jesus in John 13. John 13, verse 34 and verse 35. I want you to see what he tells his disciples. John 13, verse 34 and verse 35. Understand that this is is nearing the cross. He's going to leave them soon. Not only by way of his death, but then on after that, his ascension, after his resurrection... Here's a commandment he gives to them. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for one another. What do you notice in that text? Well, I want you to notice that Jesus gives a commandment, not a suggestion. 
new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. But the second thing I notice here is that it is by this love towards one another that he says all people will know that you're my disciples. You see, walking in love towards our fellow Christians is the testimony to the world around us that we are Christ's. Because the world around us is filled with hate. But when a Christian can love and God's people together can love each other, it is a testament of Christ who himself has borne our, shown out love. So walking in love towards our fellow Christians, it is non-negotiable. Someone once said, oh, to dwell with the saints above, that will be glory. But to dwell with the saints below, well, that's another story. Whoever said that must have been in an unregenerate church or something. You know why? I love the saints. I understand there's churches that have problems and there's skirmishes and fights, and I think that is absolutely a bad testimony and brings shame to the name of Christ. It's it's a detriment to the gospel. But I, I love the saints here in this world. I love you. I love being with you. This may be challenging at times because we are siblings, and siblings don't always get along, do they? It doesn't mean we're going to be perfect agreement on every little thing. There's one thing that doesn't change, regardless of minor disagreement. We love each other. We love each other because we're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And friend, if you don't love the saints, that's a bad testament to your spiritual condition. John tells us that loving the saints is a fruit of the new birth. He says this in 1 John 4, 20-21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, does, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Friend, you can't say that, oh, I love God, but I don't like the church. That's a contradiction of terms, and I see it prevalently, prevalently in this modern culture. Well, I can just love Jesus without loving the church. No, you can't. If you truly love Jesus, you will love the church. There should be no doubt as to whether you love your brother or sister in Christ or not. It should be evident. But beyond just our brothers and sisters, we should love our neighbor, including our enemies, which means we love those who don't know Christ. Now, this certainly may be more difficult than loving our family in Christ because the lost world around us, they can get us stirred, can't they? Make us angry at some of the things they do, some of the things they say. But let us remember the words of Jesus when he said this in Matthew 5, 44 and 45. He says to his disciples, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. Sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There's a command to love your enemies. To walk in love. We love the lost best by giving them the gospel truth of their sin and unrighteousness and, and condemnation and their need for Christ. And beyond loving them by the, with the gospel, we need to just be compassionate and kind, reflecting the love of Christ that's in us. So understand that all of this ties together that we're called to walk in love. We're called to walk in love. It is grounded in the character of God and it is given as a command from God to us. So we ask ourselves, is this us? Do we imitate God in this fashion? Notice with me, number two this morning, the cause for walking in love, because there's a great reason right in this text. The best reason imaginable. 
the cause for walking in love. Here's why. It is because Christ in love sacrificed himself for his people. Christ in love sacrificed himself for his people. Paul continues in verse 2. This is really the crux of why we walk in love and how we are able to do so, especially among the church. Paul says, walk in love as Christ loved us. As Christ loved us. Now, now, how exactly did Christ love us? Well, Paul describes how Christ loved us here when he says, he gave himself up for us. How deep is that one statement? I came to this, this one statement and it just kept getting deeper and deeper and deeper as I pondered and meditated that Christ in love gave Himself up for us. There's so much in this little statement. Christ, the perfect, sinless Son of God, gave Himself up. Now understand, for one to give themselves is the true description of sacrifice. Giving yourself. One is not sacrificing without giving of themselves in some way. It's not sacrifice. Sacrifice requires giving of yourself in some way. And when it comes to Christ, He gave Himself up to the greatest extent that any person could possibly give themselves unto. Now, you and I may, may give ourselves sacrificially in many ways. We may give of our time or our energy or our, our, our monetary means or, or whatever, our energy. We may give those things, and those are sacrificial ways of giving towards another, and we do it in a loving way. But Christ here gave himself up to the fullest extent possible. And what is that? Death. There is no greater sacrifice than death. This is the chiefest of sacrifices. And you'll notice that he gave himself up... For us, for who? Him, not himself, but for us he gave himself up. Who is the us? It is his people. It is every person who comes to believe on Christ as Lord and Savior. He died to pay and ransom them. Jesus said it this way with his disciples in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this. That someone laid down his life. Christian, you're a friend of Christ. And Christ has displayed the greatest extent of sacrificial love possible to our imagination. He loved us in the deepest possible way. He loved us sacrificially unto death. And why did He do this? He didn't just die for any reason. As Isaiah 53, 5 tells us of Christ, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Friend, Jesus died to save His people from their sins. This is why He gave Himself up unto death and it is love that brought this to pass. Now, we note that Paul speaks of Christ having loved us in the past tense with His death. That doesn't mean that He only loved us in the past. You see, you note that in His death, His death in the past, He died for the sins of all His people in the past, present, and future. 
He died for Joseph nearly 2,000 years before Joseph was ever born. Ponder that. Think about you for a moment. Knowing every sin you'd ever commit, there on the cross he hung and bore, and bore the wrath of God, satisfying his justice on behalf of those who believe in him. Spurgeon said this, He who loved thee and pardoned thee shall never cease to love and pardon. And so understand, Christian, that you have a guarantee that the whole of your life of sin is covered in the blood. Now, that's not an excuse to live in sin. Oh, it's covered, so I'll just go on my merry way. No, friend, grace changes your attitude about that. But it is a reminder to us of what grace has done. You see, the extent of Christ's love in His death exceeds all that we can even understand. He died to save all who would believe from every sin they have ever or will ever commit. The love of Christ to die for us, understand, it's inseparable from the love of the Father who predestined this redemptive sacrifice for us. It's intertwined together because the Trinity is one. God the Father, God the Son, and the Spirit. John put it this way, 1 John 4.10, In this love is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Christian, understand this for your own personal, individual Christian life. Remember that Christ hung and died on the cross for you. Consider that in an individual manner. Take it personally, that Christ has bled and died for you by His love. And with this marvelous sacrifice in view, Paul calls upon the Christian to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. You see, we as Christians are to be continually growing more and more into the likeness of Christ. How can you do that? By fixing your heart upon Christ and living our life to the best possible extent of His example. That's the only way that we can fulfill that command. Drawing near to Him. Living near to Him as He molds us and makes us into new creatures. New people as we grow in sanctification. Notice with me letter B. Not only this, that we see that Christ's love and love sacrificed Himself. But I'll notice also that Christ in love, He satisfied the Father's justice. Christ in love satisfied the Father's justice. This, in a sense, is the whole of the gospel of what Christ came to do. We notice that Christ's loving sacrifice was for us. We see that from our point of view as Christians, but we also see it from the Father's point of view in this verse. In verse 2, he continues and says of Christ's death, giving himself up, he was given as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What does this mean? The word fragrant here refers to the quality of something that affects the mind with an odor. Now, we think of it physically. It's something that smells good and it's pleasing. Today, we might think of a good-smelling meal that we're about to eat. Man, that just gets me riled up. I'm ready to eat. You smell it. I had my grandmother this week, and I had a demand for her to come visit. She's going to cook for me. So she made us three good meals, and each one smelled wonderful. She even taught me how to make cornbread. I'm not making it for you because I don't trust myself that well, but she was my supervisor. 
Beyond that, maybe think of like a, a cologne or a perfume that affects the mind. You know, those things are designed to affect the mind. Did you smell them? You think it's random that these vendors in the mall are out in the middle trying to get you to smell their smell goods, their cologne or perfume? Why? They want you to smell it because the good smell will affect your mind and maybe you'll buy it. It'll affect you in that way. They want you to, it'll draw you in. That's all physically speaking. But spiritually speaking about Christ's death, it was an offering and sacrifice to God, which was like a fragrant smell that pleased Him. That's, that's the imagery being used here. God the Father received the offering of Christ, being satisfied with it. It pleased Him, because the sacrifice of Christ satisfied the Father's demand for justice upon the sins of sinners. We see this language of sacrifice and offering and this aroma all throughout the Old Testament. When Noah exited the ark after the flood and he offered a sacrifice to God, here's what we read. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. You notice that there's this same language. His sacrifice to the Lord, it smelled like a pleasing aroma. The spiritual application imagery there. We find that through the offerings of the Old Testament. Leviticus describes five offerings commanded by God for Israel. The first three, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, they all depicted Christ in some way. But all three of these are called a soothing aroma to the Lord, a sweet-smelling savior. You see, this is the imagery of Christ's sacrifice pleasing God when He died and was risen from the dead and fully accomplished our redemption. Christ's offering of Himself for fallen man pleased and glorified His heavenly Father because it demonstrated the most complete and perfect way God's sovereign, perfect, unconditional love is. That's what it displayed. His sacrifice was an act of love both for His people He's dying for, but also to His Father in obeying Him. See, Christ came into this world for the purpose of fulfilling the Father's plan to obey Him in accomplishing our redemption. Jesus said it this way in John eight twenty nine: He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So from birth to death, Christ pleased the Father. And central to this love, it leads Him to Calvary's cross, to die as a sacrifice, an offering for His people. And the Father was pleased in His justice for sin as it was satisfied fully in His Son. Friend, the great love of God brought all of this to pass. And as you look at what Christ has done, that is the cause for loving as He loved. That is the cause for walking in love. Which brings us to number three, really just the application for us. The conviction of walking in love. This must be our own conviction. Because if it's not a conviction, you're not going to be really apt to do it. We must love sacrificially for the good of others. 
We must love sacrificially for the good of others. Come back to what Paul says for us to do. He gives us the example of love in Christ. But it comes back to these three words, these three words that are a command to us. Walk in love. The manner of your life, live it this way. Walk in love. Christian, this must be our conviction. This must be what holds us, what grips us, a way of life in which it is based on who God is and what God has done for us and what God has commanded us in His Word. If we are to walk in love as we ought, it must be as Christ did. It must be sacrificial love. Love is not just being sentimental or feeling sorry for someone. Love is sacrificial. The love we're called to walk in is sacrificial, which means it requires us giving of ourselves as Christ also gave Himself for us. 1 John 3.16 is a great display of this. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to do what? To lay down our lives for who? For the brothers or the brethren. There's the application. Walking in love. Calvin commented and said it this way, we ought to embrace each other with that love with which Christ has embraced us for what we perceive in Christ is our true guide. That's what John is saying. We see love in Christ laying his down his life for us and because of that, we lay down our lives for the brethren. Friend, that is sacrifice. We give of ourselves for the sake of the people of God. That is sacrificial love. But I want to note, interwoven into this sacrificial love is the practice of verse 32 of chapter 4. Forgiveness. Being tender-hearted and kind. Don't forget the context here that this call to be imitators of God and to walk in love, it is tied to the command to put on kindness, to be tender-hearted and forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Because you understand this, forgiveness is an act of love. Forgiveness is an act of love. And often it is sacrificial in nature because you're pardoning someone who has wronged you or hurt you in your life. That is not always easy from a human standpoint. Yet sacrificial love requires you to forgive. Peter wrote it this way, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of Friend, where love abounds, forgiveness prevails, and sins are covered. And I want us to understand this. This kind of love that forgives is the love the church must have to be in harmony and unity together. It is unforgiveness and bitterness in the body that destroys the body. We must be loving in this manner. The parallel book, Colossians, Paul wrote it this way. 3.14, above all these, put on love. Why? What's love do? Love binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is all woven together. Directly tied to the life of the church. Church, I encourage us to apply this. Let us love sacrificially for the good of others. But notice letter B, we also must love sincerely for the pleasure of God. There's the aspect in which it affects us in our Christian life and our 
church body life, but then there's the aspect we love simply because it pleases God. Christ's sacrifice was not only to purchase His people, it was also to please the Father. This truly is reason enough to love in such a way. Our aim should be as Christ was in His life, and His life perfectly was to always please the Father. This was His unwavering conviction. To do what always pleases the Father. And friend, understand this, that when we love sacrificially, we please the Father. Here's an example. When the church in Philippi Philippi gave sacrificially to the ministry of Paul, we notice a familiar statement that Paul uses in regard to their love gift to him in the ministry. Philippians 4.18, listen to this and see if it sounds familiar to what our text says. He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Notice how he describes that gift, that sacrificial love gift. What does he call it? A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You notice he's he's talking about the sacrificial love of the church in giving to help other ministers who are in need. Their gift to Paul is what Paul describes in the same way he describes the offering of Christ with his death on the cross because it was sacrificial. What a contrast that is. Never forget this. That sacrificial love for others, it is always pleasing unto God. And Christian, this is the call of our lives. Walking in love is ultimately for the purpose of pleasing God. Because when we please God in this manner, we bring glory to His name. That is the reason we exist, friend. We exist for the glory of God. I'll close with one final quote from Charles Hodge. As God is love, and as we by regeneration and adoption are His children, we are bound to exercise love habitually. Habitually means constantly, the manner of our life. So, Christian, I call on you today. Do you walk in love? Are you walking in love? Do you imitate God in this way as Paul has described to the Ephesian church? You say, well, I really haven't been. Well, if not, may that become your conviction from this day forward that you are a Christian who walks in love sacrificially towards your brothers and sisters in Christ and towards other people. Maybe today you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. That's a good indication that you're in need of Christ. Understand this, that Christ on the cross died for sin. And if there's any hope for any sinner in this room, it is Christ alone. If you do not know Christ, you do not know the love I'm talking about. You must trust in Him. Repent of sin and turn to Him. Trust in Him, for He alone is salvation for us who are lost, condemned sinners. Let us take these words to heart today. Let's stand to our feet as we prepare for a closing song.
Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you for the infinite love that you've displayed towards us. I'm thankful for these two verses that we've looked at. How deep and how wide the love of God is. Lord, your love that you've displayed and manifested and given to us is not meant just for us to enjoy, but it is meant to be reflected in our life so that others may come to know this love that we know. We are to be imitators of you so that others will see you in us. It's my prayer that you would work in our hearts in this manner, that we as a church would love in the manner in which your scriptures teach us. And Father, I also pray this morning that if there is one who is unsure of their own salvation, not sure, Father, where they would spend eternity, Lord, that you would convict them of their sinfulness, help them to see their need of Christ, bring them to desperation. They must have him if they are to ever be saved. I pray that you would work as only you can by your grace in their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.